Show. I'm Jen Pan, and I'm here with Ariella Thornhill. Ariella, how's it going? Good. Yeah, how are you, Jen? I'm good. I'm good. Uh, it's like 80 degrees in New York today, uh, which comes after like a weird cold spell, um, but I'm definitely excited for today's show. We, of course, have Adonar Usmani coming on a little later to talk about his Catalyst essay, The Economic Origins of Mass Incarceration. Um, he's also going to talk about, you know, some of the developments of the last year in regards to policing and incarceration and the fight to uh, roll back those things. Um, but... Um, I guess just to kind of start off, uh, you know, Ariella, you and I, you know, prior to the show had been talking about just the, the problem of crime in, in general. Um, I feel like this is not an issue that often is sort of talked about on the left, uh, precisely mm-hmm. because crime and criminals have so often in the past been used as a racist dog whistle by the right and by many liberals as well. Um, now, that said, I do want to mention, uh, you know, during the pandemic in 2020, we did see in the U.S. an increase in violent in violent crime, a pretty significant increase. So murders in particular uh, shot up, uh, I think, around 25 percent across the country last year uh, and are now at a level that we really haven't seen since the 90s. Um, we've also seen an increase in other sorts of violent crime, including aggravated assaults, uh, gun violence, of course, and that's especially pronounced in uh, in in major cities like New York, Philadelphia, Los Angeles, um, Minneapolis, all all have sort of experienced this increase in violent crime. Um, so you know, I, I I have a few more thoughts on this, but first I want to you know turn to you, Ariella, and ask if if this was something that had been on your radar um, and what you make of it. Yeah, I mean, it absolutely has been. I think a lot of people have noticed these trends and they get um, fractured depending on your focus, right? So in in some ways, they get funneled through conversations around gun control or conversations around domestic violence and abuse. Um, But we've also historically seen like you said, it becomes fuel for a reactionary right. And we've just lived through Donald Trump's presidency where he hammered on and on about being a law and order president. And now after the Capitol riots, the Democrats um, and even the more liberal wing have kind of taken up that mantle. And so I think it makes a lot of sense for the left to try to focus on these debates and figure out how it's going to get funneled into the current policing structures, the social welfare structures that we have right Mm -hmm. now. I also want to briefly mention, um, we don't actually know why violent crime is up. I mean, you can sort of make generalizations. Uh, It seems fair to say that because of the pandemic, obviously a lot of people are out of work. Uh, Social safety or, yeah, social safety net services are, of course, being stretched. Um, And the pandemic has just exacerbated mental health issues across the board, um, all of which could be factors leading to the increase in violent crime. Um, But I think, you know, the thing that worries me is is what what you were just touching on, that um, because I think the left and also and progressives and Democrats uh, in recent years have sort of struggled with this issue, how to talk about it, uh, how to not kind of uh, 
make it become an opportunity for law and order politicians. Um, I think that paradoxically can create a vacuum in which, you know, there's clearly a real crime problem in cities, like I said, you know, New York, Philadelphia, Los Angeles, um, and and crime and and Chicago. um, And crime disproportionately, of course, affects people who are living in lower income and poor neighborhoods. Um, And if they're not hearing any solutions. I really do fear that that creates an opportunity for law and order politicians to kind of swoop in and say, you know, we know what's going on. We want to stop the crime. Um, And just as a kind of local example, uh, it's still early in the mayoral race here in New York. But I, you know, and I don't know if like these are related, but at the same time that you see this increase in violent crime, you also see that in the polls, the leading mayoral candidates are the one are Andrew Yang and then closely behind him or a distant distantly behind him is Eric Adams. Um, and they they are both candidates who, you know, are moderates who have pledged not to cut funding to the police. Um, they've pledged not to shrink the ranks of the police. Uh, so, again, I, I just worry that, you know, there we might be seeing the beginnings of a law and order backlash. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you can see that with um, Kamala Harris's record, not just that she was extremely pro-police and not just that she tried to jail truant parents, but that she was um, explicitly pushing to fund more technocratic crime solutions that bridge the kind of Silicon Valley algorithmic uh, dystopia with the the law and order liberal, yeah. and we're seeing a rise in this. Yang is is among that set of people. Not only is he, you know, moderate. Um, I think he's very f- friendly with and um, uncritical of the NYPD. He also funded a UBI pilot in Hudson, New York, which has extreme extreme inequality Mm -hmm. um it it can be a kind of vacation art gallery destination for the rich of new york city and then a few blocks away you have just absolute and utter despair and and he put this kind of you know ubi pilot band-aid on there along with supporting more technocratic interventions like giving police access to um, criminal justice technologies that are algorithmically run. Kamala Harris supports yeah. those as well. It's um, it's a point where the left absolutely needs to have interventions of its own. Mm-hmm. I On that point, I want to read a quote from Bayard Rustin. I believe he wrote this in 1970. Um, and, and in this quote, he this is from an op-ed where he's talking about uh, kind of just the problem of crime and the problem with law and order rhetoric in the U.S. Um, but But this is about how uh, uh, he, he basically feels like the, the left is uh, missing an opportunity. So he writes, Certainly conservatives and racists have made use of this slogan, and he means law and order, to further their own deplorable ends. But it should not follow, therefore, that liberals and blacks should be against the content of this slogan. Indeed, one of the tragedies of the last few years is that the progressive elements in society have permitted the reactionaries to define the issues. Rather than propose a program of affirmative action, they have simply reacted instinctively against whatever the reactionaries have said. Um, This Baird Rustin quote, of course, comes to us via Paul Prescott, who, you know, loves Baird Rustin. Um, (laughs) Thank you, Paul, if you happen to be watching tonight. Um, And I, you know, I think that this quote is really 
uh, really interesting and is probably more true now than it was even in 1970, precisely because since 1970, we've seen the expansion of prisons. We've seen the, you know, uh, devastation of mass incarceration. We've seen uh, growing attention to, you know, ex- use of p- police violence. Um, and so this puts the left in a really tough spot, I think, you know, because we, I mean, be, like, as I've been saying, because crime is so often something that's invoked by the right, I think a lot of people on the left don't really want to go near the issue. Um, even if you just look at the difference between coverage of crime in, say, your various standard right-wing outlets, I mean, they've been covering the increase in violent crime, like, all, I mean, they're always covering they've, violent crime. They've seemed to revel in it, to right, be honest. Right, yeah, that, yeah, exactly. They've been having a field day, um, and I think, you know, I'm not saying that liberal or left outlets haven't been covering the increase in violent crime. I do think that there has been some very thoughtful coverage there, but it's, it's I think, markedly less, you know, precisely because I think people don't want to uh, do this fear-mongering, which I totally understand. But at the same time, like I said, I think it puts us in a tough spot. Yeah, and even communities that are really stricken by this, um, they have been pushing for grassroots solutions that haven't really changed since the 60s. Investment in communities, safe housing, jobs. Um, I know like Mike Davis, for instance, works with people in LA who are former gang members and gang members. And rather than sitting them down and being like, well, you never had a dad and you, you know, you missed out on role models. He's like, let me describe to you the economic foundations of crime in your community. Mm -hmm. Like he is absolutely a person that, you know, has been engaging with this without fear mongering with and with an honesty that this is really scary and awful to have to confront Mm -hmm. and to have to live through. Mm -hmm. And you know, he's part of a group of people across America. Um, I know there are groups like this in Chicago, in Baltimore, in Philadelphia, where they're taking seriously having a safe community. Mm-hmm. And they are looking at crime. And mm-hmm. they are saying, we don't like it. Mm-hmm. Right? But they're p- positioning themselves as um, actually making an intervention at the root of crime. Right. Rather than um, stereotyping criminals and creating an apparatus that, you know, actually doesn't adequately address any of the issues that they're facing. Right. Um, so I know that you have uh, some some thoughts on the making of criminals. <laughs> yes. Uh, I'm just kidding, Kai. I mean, well, well, no, not really. I mean, this has been a really enduring dynamic. uh, And it's one that I was struck by when I was looking for clips about this. I was looking at a lot of stuff around the 1994 crime bill. And over and over and over on C-SPAN, you hear people be like, unwed mothers, single Mm -hmm. mothers, and talking about these hordes of kids becoming street predators And that's the context in which Hillary Clinton used the term super predator um, and also wrote her book, It Takes a Village to Raise a Child. I would add, like, it takes a well-funded village with, like, resources and amenities for all people. Parental leave, a village with (laughs) Medicare for all. Not just a village. (laughs) 
things should be happening in that village. Um, But yeah, I wanted to do a segment on this idea of single or unwed mothers creating hordes and hordes of criminals. And it's not strictly about crime, but like I said, I was really struck by how many times unwed mothers are brought up as a catalyst for the production of future criminals. Let's watch this Joe Biden clip where he talks about the way that single motherhood creates a scourge of street predators. There's a second thing that we all have agreed upon, and that is unless we do something about that cadre of young people, tens of thousands of them, born out of wedlock, without parents, without supervision, without any structure, without any conscience developing, because they literally, I yield myself three more minutes, because they literally have not been socialized. They literally have not had an opportunity. We should focus on them now, not out of a liberal instinct for love, brother, and humanity, although I think that's a good instinct, but for simple, pragmatic reasons. If we don't, they will, or a portion of them will, become the predators 15 years from now. And Madam President, we have predators on our streets. Now let's watch Eric Holder, former Attorney General under the Obama administration, talk about his take on the unwed mother crisis also in the 90s. In Washington, D.C., we have a problem, and it's true nationwide as well, that our black community must be very honest with itself in ways that perhaps it has not been in the past. Uh, This is something that I've been harping on in the 15, 16 months or so that I've been U.S. attorney and gotten very honestly very mixed reviews or reactions from people. Uh, I think that too often in my community, in the black community, we have been too forgiving. We have been too permissive, and we have let things go that we know to be wrong without saying that we know they're wrong and that these uh, kinds of actions are unacceptable. For instance, the unwed birth rate is something that I think if social pressure was brought to bear, uh, we could dramatically drive that down. It is not simply a question of stigmatizing people because we certainly don't want to do that, and we certainly love all of the children in our community, but we have to be honest that this plague of unwed births has a negative effect not only on the children uh, who are born in that condition, but also the women, the girls, uh, who give birth to those kids. They don't have an opportunity to develop their skills and become productive members of society in ways uh, that they otherwise might. So I think those are the kinds of things we have to be very honest with ourselves about and very um, and have to be aggressive in trying to deal with. And I think also if you look at these social problems, you begin to understand that there really is a connection between these social problems um, and the violence problem that affects our city. And we really do have more a violence problem than a crime problem. And if you look at the statistics since 1980, the crime rate is actually down in every category except for homicide, aggravated assaults, and um, stolen cars. So this narrative is probably familiar to everyone in the U.S., and I don't need to belabor the point here, but to uh, suffice it to say, you can see clips of this pretty much with every major Democrat and Republican agreeing that single mother households are creating the next generation of criminals. And the sad thing is, in the U.S., a lot of data bears this out. Children of single parents do have worse outcomes here, And in many cases, these children go on to be involved in criminal activity. 
It's not the case, however, that correlation necessarily equals causation here, but study after study shows that after controlling for all other factors, a high percentage of incarcerated minors grew up in single mother households. This doesn't mean these individual correlations create a hard and fast rule that every child of a single mother will be a criminal. Obviously, the issue is much more complex. And the reduction of this issue, the reduction of it to a political talking point, contains classism and racism and was a useful dog whistle for politicians across the aisle. The interpretation has been around for decades and has been adopted by racial groups, by uh, Democrats, Republicans alike, even some libertarians. Rather than looking at the systemic roots of even single parenthood, they'd rather scapegoat single mothers for the crime wave that we'll discuss later. But this is deliberately only half the story. The U.S. has comparable, if not lower, rates of out-of-wedlock marriage than other OECD countries. And for all these other nations, single parenthood doesn't create nearly as disastrous a result. So we see here that the U.S. uh, ranks around the middle or average of unwed or births outside of marriage, whereas countries like Chile and Costa Rica are higher. And then you have uh, Iceland, Mexico, and France in the top five. But what we don't see is... Iceland, for instance, having a scourge of super predators. Here's a quote from one beleaguered Icelander, herself a single mother of three. Quote, you have this horrible term in English, broken families, Brindis Asmundetir says over coffee, which basically means just if you get divorced, then something's broken. But that's not the way it is in Iceland at all. We live in such a small and secure environment And the women have so much freedom. So you can just, you can choose your life. Iceland, unlike the U.S., offers general parental leave benefits, as well as child benefits for all families, and a means-tested additional benefit for families with children who are low income. In fact, almost every OECD country has more generous child benefits than the U.S., as you can see from this graphic. The U.S. is almost last, barely edging out Turkey for that spot, whereas every other country provides funds for families who are single earners or two-parent earners or single parents. And Iceland, along with dozens of other countries, has a social welfare model that lowers the stakes of many things that in the U.S. can completely ruin a person's life. Turns out socialized medicine, expansive unemployment benefits, and municipal housing guarantees go a long way towards stopping the scourge of bastard street predators. It's not that we have single mothers in the U.S. It's how we treat single mothers in the U.S. It's the profound difficulty, precarity, and strife we subject them and all poor and working class people to. Economic freedom for adults, particularly for women, means safety for kids. The U.S. has the highest rate of child deaths caused by neglect, maltreatment, or physical assault compared to other OECD countries. As you can see on this graph, the U.S. 
does have a horrific, horrific record of uh, child deaths and ranks highest among every other country. Iceland in the graph has a disproportionately high rate of deaths, but that's only because there was one death of a child recorded in this time frame. And the population of children in that country is so small that the graph overrepresented the data. But in the US, the homicide rate of children was higher than in Mexico. The thing is, there is an issue with violence in the US. We stand out particularly in violence against children and the deaths of children at the hands of adults. But there is also the banal brutality of deprivation and insecurity that mark people's lives. When people like Eric Holder or Biden talk about looking at the source of the issues, they are well within the mainstream narrative of blaming single mothers and culture for these outcomes. But there have always been leftists, many of whom they openly criticized, that pointed out a different cause and a different solution. Let's watch a clip of Bernie responding to the Biden-Hatch crime bill. How do we talk about the very serious crime problem in America without mentioning, without mentioning that we have the highest rate of childhood poverty in the industrialized world by far, with 22% of our children in poverty and 5 million kids hungry today. Do you think maybe that might have some relationship to crime? How do we talk about crime when this Congress is prepared this year to spend 11 times more for the military than for education? When 21% of our kids drop out of high school, when a recent study told us that twice as many young workers now earn poverty wages as 10 years ago, when the gap between the rich and the poor is growing wider, and when the rate of poverty continues to grow. Do you think maybe that might have some relationship to crime? And now let's hear from Toni Morrison, who tackles the stigma of single motherhood, the notion of the nuclear family, and the issue of teen pregnancy in this heartwarmingly blunt excerpt from an interview with Time magazine. I'll read some clips. Quote, uh, Time asks Morrison, this leads to the problem of, a de of the depressingly large number of single-parent households and the crisis in unwed teenage pregnancies. Do you see a way out of that set of worsening circumstances and statistics? To which Toni Morrison replies, well, neither of those things seems to me a debility. I don't think a female running a house is a problem, a broken family. It's perceived as one because of the notion that a head is a man. Two parents can't raise a child any more than one. You need a whole community, everybody, to raise a child. The notion that the head is the one who brings in the most money is a patriarchal notion. That a woman, and I have raised two children alone, is somehow lesser than a male head. Or that I am incomplete without that male. That this is not true. And that little nuclear family is a paradigm that just doesn't work. It doesn't work for white people or for black people. Why are we hanging on to it? I don't know. It isolates people into little units. People need a larger unit. He goes on to ask her about teen pregnancies, saying that they deprive young women of the opportunity to pursue their dreams and goals and that they're harmful for kids. Quote, you don't feel that these girls will never know whether they could have been teachers or whatever? 
To which Morrison responds, they can be teachers. They can be brain surgeons. We have to help them become brain surgeons. That's my job. I want to take them all in my arms and say, your baby is beautiful and so are you and honey, you can do it. And when you go to be a brain surgeon, call me. I will take care of your baby. That's the attitude you have to have about human life. But we don't want to pay for that. I don't think anybody cares about unwed mothers unless they're black or poor. The question is not morality. The question is money. That's what we're upset about. We don't care whether they have babies or not. How do you break the cycle of poverty? You can't just hand out money. Why not? Everybody gets everything handed to them. The rich get it handed, they inherit it. I don't mean just inheritance of money. I mean what people take for granted among the middle and upper classes, which is nepotism, the old boy network. That's the shared bounty of class. As we'll see later, you can just give people money. You can just hand out money. You can just give people resources. We've seen every other OECD nation do it, and it works. It prevents crime. It changes the stakes of single parenthood. It provides the basis for economic freedom. I've talked in the past about participating in a program for unwed Medicare recipients when I was pregnant. This was six years ago. <laughs> here, here comes one now. <laughs> Isa. Mommy's going to finish talking, okay? Ready? Can you take a deep breath so I can finish talking? Lisa actually really, really disagrees with the conceit that single mothers somehow create criminals. Is that right, Isa? Okay, Daddy's going to help you get something, all right? I think that this actually was a perfect addition to the talk on motherhood. Everybody yeah. asks Ariella's daughter, we'll Isa. We'll have to do that later. She's, She's extremely so adorable. She she one hates uh, most of the narrative about single mothers. Yeah, <laughs> you can hear that in the background. <laughs> that was the cause for all of the uproar. <laughs> the the true thing is she doesn't want me to work. She's um, got the right idea. I mean, what can I say? <laughs> yeah. So the the goal of the program, and I've talked to Jen about this on a past episode, was to push me to getting married by spouting every awful statistic about women in my position and to shame me about cursing my child to a horrific fate. But the shame lies squarely on the shoulders of the country that so systematically punishes and traps the poor in these outcomes in such a way that it appears to be inevitable. We know how to help single mothers, and it's not through shame, and it's not through pushing people towards marriage. We know how to prevent the next generation of predators. It starts with redistribution, housing, healthcare, jobs, economic freedom. We don't need to reinvent the wheel. We have the resources. We have countless examples from other nations. It's time to build the political apparatus to get us there. 
So speaking of political apparatus, I would be remiss if I did not say that I love the vintage Bernie clip, of course. Uh, the vintage <laughs> Joe clip is pretty good, too. Like, I have never yeah. seen him have so much energy <laughs> as when he is <laughs> condemning single motherhood, I guess. Yeah, that really gets his ire up. We're going right. to run a couple more of those clips when a Donner joins us later because you really start to see and unpack the logic of that crime bill Mm -hmm. and he says we had oh sociologists and leftists saying you've got to get to the root and he's like but we don't have time for that right (laughs) we need to do something else we need to crack down now um i think it provides a lot of context we got to do a show on the 90s. We do. Yeah, we do. <laughs> We've already there. done the 2000s with the Bush era. We have to dial it back even more. No, it's true. Yep. Um, I, I also want to quickly add, you know, I think the flip side uh, to what you've just been talking about with the kind of uh, penalization of single motherhood and just the complete lack of uh, any kind of social supports for single motherhood in the U.S. is that in the absence of any kind of you know, social programs for parents. We have instead in the U.S. these really like punitive and draconian child support uh, yeah. bills and legislation, which of course penalize poor dads. Uh, oftentimes, mm-hmm. you know, men who can't pay child support and then who fail to show up in court uh, then get sent to jail. Um, yeah. I believe that there were you know several high-profile instances over the last few years of you know. Uh, low-income black men who, you know, couldn't pay child support, didn't show up to court dates uh, because they had to work or, you know, for whatever reason, uh, then got sent to jail, got out, uh, got pulled over by the police, um, and then were killed. Mm -hmm. So you can really see how this entire system just sets people up, not just the kids, but, you know, the parents too, to be put into these awful situations where they may be in violation of the law in some way um, and then are basically punished for being poor um so yeah yeah, i think i think that's another way in which the just you can so clearly see the social causes of crime you know when it comes to parents um and i also want to point out something that matt brunig is is it talks about quite frequently is that like the u.s doesn't help parents who doesn't help parents who are in two-parent households either, right? No. So, <laughs> and the, yeah, that graph showed every other yeah. country is doing that. Every other country has some way of supporting the people who make it citizens, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Whether, whether they have citizenship or not in many of these cases. Right, It's right. like you have people who live around you, mm-hmm. and they have children, and you need to provide a benefit for that. right. Right, um, and along we, with much, much better functioning healthcare, schools, and and all of those things. Right, I think we had also we had mentioned this when we had Kristen Godsey on, um, but Utah a few weeks ago passed a new bill where they are yeah. now requiring dads or biological fathers to contribute half of all prenatal care costs. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's just the most, I mean, it's, it's, it, and fetal I, I, child support. Exactly, exactly, and it's just the, it's, it's the. Um, it's just the craziest thing because it's like this is what you get in the absence of like any kind of functioning healthcare system that would provide that coverage for prenatal care. No, instead yeah. we have to track down the dads to pay for half of it. 
Exactly. And, um, you know, in the U.S., you have this uh, system that shifts social welfare programs onto individuals. Mm-hmm. So sometimes you can access that through your job. Like, if you take the amount of um, benefits that people get through employment and you add it to federal funding for benefits, we're comparable with other welfare states. But there's a gate, and the obvious gate there is employment. Mm -hmm. And then you create another gate, which may be child support, right, to get these uh, child benefits. And so you're shifting the risk and the financial responsibility onto individuals or individual units as defined by law or as defined by tax code. And uh, it's it's a disaster. It's, it's an a disaster. disaster. Um, before we bring a daughter on, I just want to quickly mention I was reading about Utah's uh, you know prenatal or Utah's various child support uh, legislation, and they just recently passed a new like bill or whatever that uh, will ban dads who don't pay child support from obtaining hunting and fishing licenses and i just think it's like it's i mean that's a very like western usa specific thing but it's also just like this is not a sustainable solution i don't know to... i feel like i can we both grew up in rural america i can <laughs> yeah we're like that's i where can it relate to why they thought like here's where we'll get them yeah 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 take away the <laughs> it's unbelievable. What's the gun lobby saying about this? I know, right? <laughs> Where are they? Well, I mean, I guess I guess the people can I guess the dads can still collect the guns. They just can't use them for anything. Oh, I see. Well, Except for killing fine. people. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> um, but anyway, I guess I guess on that note, uh, maybe let's bring out a donor now, uh, who again is the author of the great catalyst essay, uh, The Economic Origins of Mass Incarceration. Um, a donor is also, sorry, I should pull up your bio, <laughs> assistant professor of sociology and social studies at Harvard University. Uh, and you have a new book forthcoming uh, with your co-author of that article, John Clegg. Uh, do you, do you want to say a few words about that? Uh, sure. Yeah. I, I mean, forthcoming, I think, is the critical word. <laughs> it's, it's still in the works. But the idea is to, the idea is to, find better evidence to support some of the arguments that we made in the Catalyst piece by leaning on cross-national and historical comparisons. A lot of the stuff that Ariella was saying earlier and that both of you were saying earlier about American exceptionalism in social policy, I think is really key to the story of American mass incarceration. And so we're collecting data from other countries to try and put flesh on that argument. Because the Catalyst essay, even while it made references to those cross-national effects was basically rooted in American data and a narrative about American history. So we're trying to expand it. So I guess let's let's start by kind of talking about some of those roots of mass incarceration, because I think one of the really important things that your piece does is you look at the crime wave that uh, occurred in the U.S. in the 60s and 70s. You say this was a real thing. Uh, violent crime was very real during this time period. Uh, and this this helped spark the push for mass incarceration. Can you give us a little bit of of that history? Yeah, sure. I think maybe the best way to get into it is to start with what many people think happened and I think what is probably the dominant narrative of what happened. The dominant narrative is that what happened is that there was a rise in law and order politics driven by 
kind of a backlash to the civil rights movement. And so um, after mid-century, African-Americans made these gains in American society. There was also the Great Migration, which was changing the composition of American cities. And in that context, it became electorally profitable for these white Southern political elites to use law and order politics to make electoral gains back, basically, to try and win disaffected white voters away from the Democrats to the Republicans. And generally, I think our story of the rise of mass incarceration has been intimately tied to that story. It's been a story about this kind of law and order politics backlash, inaugurating the punitive turn in American criminal justice. And as a consequence, it's been more or less detached from the facts about crime and violence. The idea has basically been that these politicians concocted a crime wave and concocted public panic about that crime wave. John and I have been looking for a long time at a lot of public opinion data, both among African-Americans and white Americans. And we concluded in our early research that it's just not, it's just not plausible, I think, to argue that people, A, uh, didn't notice that crime was rising dramatically. And obviously that... Mm -hmm. Secondly, that crime was rising dramatically. We know from various statistics, it's difficult to measure crime over time, but we have, for instance, the homicide rate, which is reliably measured over time, which increased dramatically over this period. And so there was this dramatic change in the 60s, 70s, 80s. Crime stayed at very high levels until the mid-1990s. And we saw that in our early research. Uh, we saw that make itself felt in American public opinion. And as a consequence, we wanted to write a different story about what America, what had happened to American politics over this period, that it wasn't really tied to this concoction of crime. And furthermore, you know, the, the idea in the traditional story is that mass incarceration is all about the war on drugs. What happened is that basically this punitive turn was a turn to criminalize kind of ordinary, innocent behavior. Um, drug use, which is common both amongst African-Americans and also amongst black America, uh, white Americans. But basically, the, the punitive state was made itself felt in particular communities. And that that's, explain, that's what explains the rise in prison populations. We thought that that doesn't work, basically. In fact, you know, we know that most people who are in American prisons are not in American prisons for drug offenses. So we basically wanted to tell a story about what had happened that could integrate the facts of the increase in crime and the fact of increasing punitiveness in the American population. I think my next question then is what led to this increase in crime? Because I think that's also key for, you know, some of the solutions that you're going to talk about later. Yeah, it's a great, it's a great question. I think it's, so the, the argument that, I think maybe we should begin from, by observing a couple of different puzzles about crime and violence regarding the United States. So one is this increase in crime and violence that began in the 1960s and continued to the 1990s. But that's just part of a broader complex of puzzles about crime and violence in the United States. So one thing that Ariel alluded to earlier in her segment was that America is more violent than other countries. And that has been a more or less stable fact throughout the 20th century. America has been considerably more violent than other developed countries. And then also that crime and violence are distributed unevenly in, inside the United States. Poor, low-income people are much more likely to be both victims of violence and also offending. So what we need is an explanation that can account for all of these different things that are, are characteristic of violence in the United States. And the short answer is that John and I think that 
the core of the story is about concentrated poverty and concentrated disadvantage, what sociologists call concentrated disadvantage, which basically just means the concentration of poor people in poor areas where there are very few, going back to what Arielle was saying in her excellent segment, there are just very few resources available for self-development, safety, um, et cetera, et cetera, right? For a strong, vibrant um, life, basically, community life. And so why did that happen in the United States at mid-century? I think the short story is that the United States, in effect, is unique amongst advanced capitalist countries in that it industrialized with Europe's peasantry rather than with its own in some important sense. And so what happened, what I think is characteristic of the American labor market over the 20th century is that African-Americans after sharecropping collapsed in the South came in effect late to American labor markets and found it very difficult to make inroads into American labor markets as a result of obviously white racism, also as a result of this kind of late arrival, missing basically kind of the industrialization boat. And that's just caused, America has basically failed to replace the jobs for African-American males that were lost to the collapse of farming for the duration of the 20th century. And there's just been this persistent problem of massive levels of unemployment uh, in African-American communities as a consequence for the 20th century. Um, and, and it's that, I think, that is at the heart of the problems of the rise in violence and the rise in crime. That's kind of, as we say in the article, that's triggered by certain changes that happen post-war. But I think the core of the problem is this. The core of the problem is lies in the labor market, I think, in the United States. Yeah, I think your article, you're in, you and John do a great job of kind of teasing out some of the dynamics that get glossed in the more what's become the mainstream narrative around crime, policing, and mass incarceration, which is that there is a racial element, but it's not driving these dynamics. And you look at the kind of economic underpinnings that are driving these dynamics. Could you go into a little more detail on, you know, what the role of race is in these dynamics um, and what the role of race is not? Yeah, absolutely. So I think, so to be very clear, what is one of the features of mass incarceration is its outrageous racial inequality and racial disparity. African-American men are anywhere from like, I think, five to seven times more likely to be in prison. The question, obviously, for us is what explains that? And we need to explain that in order to change it, right? And I think there are two possible explanations that one can think of, and they can each be true to different extents. One would be the what we might take to be the more conventional explanation is that what explains racial inequality and criminal justice outcomes is racial discrimination inside the criminal justice system. And there's no doubt that that kind of racial discrimination exists. You, I mean, nobody will be surprised to learn that in America, police officers are biased, judges are biased, prosecutors are biased, et cetera, et cetera. It, the criminal justice system is shot through and through with racial bias. There's no doubt about that. But then the other possible explanation, obviously, is racial inequality in the input to the criminal justice system. Higher levels of violence in black communities are also going to produce racial inequalities in outcome. And in, in general, what criminologists and sociologists have concluded is that most of the inequality is explained by the second thing and not the first thing. So discrimination, there are various ways to estimate this, but discrimination explains roughly around 20 to 25% of the racial inequality in outcomes, with the rest explained by racial inequalities in crime commission. I think it's really important for socialists 
and leftists to say right then the things that you've been saying throughout this segment, which is that racial inequalities in crime commission are obviously just an index of racial inequalities in life circumstances. I mean, crime is an index of oppression. That's something that we say in the article. It's something that I really strongly believe. So in effect, the racial inequalities that we take to be symptoms of, that, that, that are we're trying to explain in the criminal justice system reflect what you might call racial oppression or racial inequality in life circumstances, and not so much racial discrimination inside the criminal justice system, although, of course, that exists. And can you talk about the way that class plays into this? Because there is a graph in the article, I think it's the first figure, the disparities in rates of institutionalization by race and education. And so you see this kind of massive, massive increase in rates of incarceration among or institutionalization uh, amongst um, people with high school educations versus college yeah. grads. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I think the reason that we we use that graph at the beginning of the catalyst piece is because that graph and what you see also in that graph, although it's, I think in retrospect, we realize it's not really very easy to see is that racial disparities have been more or less constant over this period. They've risen and then they fell over the period that we would call mass incarceration with the result that racial disparities are basically the same at the beginning as they are at the end. And so if the kind of conventional story that we tell about mass incarceration were true, that this were this was an attempt of these uh, white Southern politicians throwing the punitive state at, at African-Americans who are doing nothing more than using drugs, you would expect to see racial disparities explode. But you don't really see that. You see something else. You see actually a massive increase in poor people. And in fact, the probability of a, of a rich black person going to prison over the last 30, 40 years has declined over the last, over the period that we call mass incarceration. And that is other, that, that's further evidence for us that this is really a story about what's happening outside the criminal justice system. It's really a story about American poverty. You might say here as like a summary word, it's a story about neoliberalism. It's a story about the way the labor market has collapsed for young, unskilled men who then turn to crime and then are caught up in the American criminal justice system. So following from that, uh, something that you point out in the essay is that there were liberals in the 1960s uh, who were really interested in addressing kind of these social roots of crime and addressing poverty. Um, But why? And then, of course, you know, there were the liberals who signed on to the kind of law and order policies. um, But I think because you are clear in pointing out that there was there were politicians who were interested in expanding the welfare state and who understood crime as a problem of an insufficient welfare state. What stopped them? Why were they unable to carry the project forward? Yeah, it's a super question. I was so uh, compelled to to watch Uncle Bernie say the same things in 1994. (laughs) I mean, I think of him as the lineage of those people in the 60s, right? And Mm -hmm. I think think this is where where one has to understand what it would have taken to launch that kind of response. So to take the kind of response to crime that Ariella was outlining in her segment, which is, to attack crime at its roots, right? To attack the root causes of crime, which I think we take to be requiring an expansion of the welfare state. What one needs to understand is that that requires much, much more redistribution and much, much more spending by the government than an expansion of the penal state. So that that's a point that's often a little difficult to understand because you'll commonly hear this statistic trotted out by criminal justice reformers 
that it costs $40,000 to put a person in prison, only costs $10,000 to send them to school or to college. Obviously, the penal state is so much more expensive, they'll say. Um, and so it can't be uh, that sort of that fact sits uneasily with the thing that I've just said. What you need to understand is that penal intervention in a person's life is hyper, hyper targeted. So while it is true that when the penal state makes contact with an individual, that per contact might be more expensive. The penal state is just intervening at the worst moments in someone's life, when they commit a crime, when they get arrested, when they're in prison. But the welfare state is something that, in order to be successful, has to make contact with a person throughout their life, right? And not just make contact with people who commit crime, but with everyone. Um, with the vast, vast majority of poor people, remember, won't commit crime. So to, to be... To be uh, to be to build a welfare state, you need to redistribute to all poor people for substantial proportions of their life. And that just means that the welfare state is a much, much more expensive endeavor than the penal state. So to go back to your question in the 60s, why were liberals not able to do what they promised? I think it's basically a story of the incapacity of liberals and obviously the left to force redistribution in that context. I mean, in effect, there, there are many different things happening in the 1960s in American politics. But, you know, by the late 1960s, the civil rights movement, which was probably our best hope for that kind of redistribution at that moment, was flagging. There's also the, the war in Vietnam, which was costing an enormous amount of money and making redistribution much, much less likely. So there are these conjunctural things that are happening in the 1960s that I think just mean that we weren't able, our ancestors weren't able really to hold the liberals' feet to the fire in the way that we would want, in the way that we will want to today. I would also say, and this is maybe a slightly more pessimistic note to sound, that this is also just a persistent feature of American political economy over the last hundred years almost, right? In the late 19th century, America redistributed from rich to poor roughly at the rate that other European countries did, even in a world with not very much redistribution. But by 1930, a gap had opened up and America redistributed only about half what these other countries do. And that gap has basically been persistent throughout. And in the Catalyst essay, we try and offer an explanation for that, which also has to do with what I was speaking about earlier, the way in which the labor movement is so divided as a consequence of the way in which proletarianization happened. Yeah, Kale, can we pull up the graph, the ratio of social to punitive spending as a share of GDP in developed countries? There's a lot of graphs today for Kale. <laughs> so bad for him. Because you and John say the United States combines the harshest penal state in the advanced world with its stingiest welfare state. Yeah, and exactly. What dynamic does that create? It might seem obvious as a conclusion, but can you flesh out the conclusion? What what does that do socially? Yeah, well, I think it... So I, I think what it does socially are many of the things that already you and Jen were speaking about earlier, which is that it actually leads to a welfare state. It, it sort of infects the welfare state with a certain kind of punitiveness. I mean, all of the discussions of, of the child support and the way in which child support is entangled with imprisonment and all of this, I think, is a, a perfect illustration of that. But I think the other thing, the other thing to note here is that 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 the the thing that I think maybe goes back to what I was trying to say, which maybe is not 
fully conveyed by that graph, but needs to be understood, or maybe it is conveyed by the graph, is that even the United States, which is at the, you know, we would obviously the United States, second only to Stalin's Soviet Union and the number of people it puts behind bars, that despite the fact that it is the most overdeveloped penal state in world history, it spends more on social policy than on penal policy, which illustrates the point that I was trying to make, which is that building a welfare state that successfully redistributes from rich to poor is just much, much more expensive than locking people up and throwing away the key, which is the United States modal response to poverty. So I, I want to jump forward to present day a little bit, um, because you guys wrote the essay in 2019. And obviously, since then, last year, we've seen a pretty, you know, unprecedented wave of mass protests against police violence after the death of George Floyd. Um, and I think that there really is a renewed energy around trying to push through some kind of police reform and criminal justice reform. Um, and of course, solutions range from, you know, the George Floyd Justice in Policing Act, all the way to things like slashing police budgets and even rethinking the idea of the police itself. Um, so I'm wondering, just looking back on the last year, where you see kind of the most opportunity for overhauling the criminal justice system? It's a super question. I, I think it's something I'm, th I'm still thinking about. I, I think the first thing that I would say is that for someone who writes about mass incarceration and began writing about it for 2014, before the wave of protests, I think the last five, six years have been in some ways really heartening because I think people are taking note of the egregious ways in which America does criminal justice, not just policing, but prisons. I mean, the, the state of American prisons, what it means to be in an American prison, the number of people who are in American prisons. These are all just outrageous things and that that's what initially drew me to writing about this topic. What I would say in general, my gloss on what has happened over the last year is that Activists and activists and leftists in general, I think, have the right idea, which is that the the the, the right idea, which is basically that there's something there's something rotten in a society that uses police and prisons to manage problems of poverty rather than the welfare state. I see that in a lot of rhetoric that activists use. You see that in the defund the police idea that there's something wrong with a society that throws prisons and police at social problems. What I would say, however, is that the challenge is sometimes the challenge, the, 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 the size of the challenge or the magnitude of the challenge is sometimes understated because I think sometimes we think we can solve these problems by taking a municipal budget or a local or even a state budget and redistributing from prisons and police to social policy. But the reality is just that state and local governments spend, going back to the stuff that we were saying earlier, state and local governments just don't spend that much money on prisons and police. And so if you were to take money from this part of the budget and move it to the welfare state, you'd still just have an extremely stingy welfare state. The real challenge before us, I think, is the real challenge that confronts us in all domains of politics, which is to take from the rich in rich areas and give to the poor in poor areas. So, you know, what a, what, a, what a real American welfare state would look like is a welfare state that took from Bill Gates and redistributed to Ferguson, Missouri. That's the kind of thing that we need to build. And that's the kind of thing that you just can't build at the local level. You need to build at the national level. 
Yeah, I want to talk about the issue of redistribution because it has come up. And like you said, it's kind of reemerged every decade in this in conversations around crime, criminality and policing. And uh, there's been a resurgence in uh, and a renewed focus on municipal budgets specifically and what they do, which I think is great. Like, give me the receipts. Let's we should be holding these people's feet to the fire. But the uh, the question of whether those funds goes far enough is another story. I wanted to first run these clips after the Watts riots and the Kerner Commission addressed uh, these riots as well as others. um, There was a renewed push to create jobs programs, federally funded jobs programs. Um, And Sam, you already famously rejected this money. uh, And he'll explain why in the clip. Um, not explicitly, but he'll scapegoat communists like all the good old boys did. Um, yeah, he rejected this money um, while the residents were explicit that they wanted these programs yeah. to happen. So I wanted to run these clips and then uh, follow up with a question for you. Great. Of course, uh, we're going to have uh, incidents uh, between the police and citizens, no matter how hard we try to prevent them. We have 5,000 officers. There's going to be some misconduct. There are going to be some mistakes. And we've got some people who are trying to inflame uh, the the, uh, minority people every time there's an incident and use it to destroy the police department. Here's an example of a Dodger passed around calling a mass meeting. And the name of this new organization is Committee to End Legalized Murder by Cops. Now, this was formed by some people from the W.E.B. Du Bois Society, which has been named as communist by J. Edgar Hoover and by the Attorney General of the United States. What have I been living through? Nothing but a lot of work. Less pay. Less pay than the white man, you mean? That's right. Do you think it always has to be this way? Not necessarily. What do you think will bring about a change? Give everybody a job, that's all. That's all any of us need is a job. See, all us men standing out here, we don't need nothing but a job. You wouldn't see us out here. We don't have nowhere to go. We don't have no jobs. Where is it for us to do? So that demand was pretty much universal across the board in every single neighborhood and city that these riots happened in, not just in Watts. And it was addressed and there was money put aside and a program was drawn up to provide jobs to black men in L.A., Uh, It was rejected, like I said, by Sam Yorty. We have, I think, federalism and (laughs) America's fractured budgetary system to blame for their ability to do this. So how does that bode for us creating a national movement that could address some of this stuff? Even the Black Lives Matter movement in 2016 included redistribution and economic justice in their platform. And I think that they are now putting their support behind the BREATHE Act as well as defund. But the BREATHE Act, um, you know, is meant to be a kind of more expansive program around with some economic justice tenants to it. Um, how can that work in the U.S. when we, we've we seen time and time again that on the local level, people can just reject it? Yeah, I mean, it's a great, it's a great point you make. I think it's more, you know, it's partly that people can just reject it. I think the, the, in some ways, the deeper, more challenging problem is that local states have always struggled to redistribute from rich to poor because the costs of fleeing the local state are extremely 
minimal for rich people. Mm -hmm. It basically means you jump to the suburbs and you can move across. There's a million stories about why everyone in California is moving to Texas right now because of this. <laughs> right. There you go. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So I think, you know, I think I, I would say the, the, the difficulty here is that the problem is very clearly local. This is one of the things that we try to emphasize in our argument, in our, in our article, which is that so many histories of mass incarceration are told as a history of what the federal government did, but really mass incarceration is a story of what many different state and local officials did. The difficulty, of course, is precisely because of American federalism, precisely because of the need for redistribution, the solution has to be national. And that means that the kinds of political alliances we need to build, the kind of, the kind of coalition we need to build is going to be different and more tricky to construct than the kind of local coalitions that have currently coalesced around criminal justice reform. And I, I, I don't, you know, I say this as someone who is, is a, just a terrible organizer and activist. I don't have any <laughs> insights here. I just think that that is the scope of the problem. What, one thing I will say is that uh, when you were saying that there were a lot of, there was a lot of, uh, when you were saying that a lot of people were saying what this man in the clip was saying, that this is a fundamentally a problem of employment. There is a lot of encouraging evidence in the public opinion polls that I was saying earlier, John and I were looking at when we were writing our catalyst essay. So there's a there, there so people are often asked the question, like, do you think courts should be harsher or courts should be less harsh? That's one of the most commonly asked questions in national opinion surveys. And when they're asked basically for like an up or down vote on what they think criminal justice policy should be. At the height of the crime wave, it's extremely sobering to see what people are saying. 90% of African-Americans, for instance, in the late 80s are saying we want courts to be harsher. But there are also other questions that are asked that give them more choices. So there are some questions that say a lot of people say you should have more. Uh, there's a this, there's problem of crime. This questioner asks um, a lot of people say we should fight it with more jobs and education. A lot of people say that we should fight it with prisons and police. What do you think? When people are asked the question in that way, majorities of African-Americans actually say jobs and education rather than prisons and police. And I think one way of summarizing what has happened over the last 30, 40 years in American politics is that people have not been given this choice. That's partly a consequence of what politicians propose, but really it's also a consequence of the weakness of the left, I think. The, we the inability of the left to really force politicians to, to do this. And I think one of the things that I'm hopeful about is that that has seemed to, that, that does seem to have changed just as part of the general left renaissance. And so maybe we can make progress tapping into people's common sense, because I think that common sense is totally out there. Mm -hmm. I want to actually follow that up by running the antithesis of Bernie. Well, he was responding to Biden. I, I want to run two clips of Biden um, talking about the 94 crime bill, the Biden hatch bill, and why it was necessary and why it was necessary to ignore the social foundations of crime. Mm. So I hope this crime bill, when it passes, the Biden hatch crime bill, as it becomes law, God willing, I hope that we will have ended once and for all this notion that is a hangover from the 60s, that somehow Democrats are weak on crime and Democratic presidents are weak on crime and Republicans are tough on crime. The truth is every major crime bill since 1976 that's come out of this Congress, every minor 
crime bill has had the name of the Democratic senator from the state of Delaware, Joe Biden, on that bill and has had a majority vote of the Democratic members of the United States Senate on the bill. So one of the things I want to do in addition to end the crime is end the political carnage that goes on when we talk about crime. Crime is not Democrat or Republican. Making the streets safe is not a Democratic or Republican issue. This is one of those issues I hope this passage of this bill will do, will be taken out of the gridlock category and moved into an emerging consensus. And the consensus is as follows, and I will cease when I finish this statement. The consensus is, A, we must take back the streets. It doesn't matter whether or not the person that is accosting your son or daughter or my son or daughter, my wife, your husband, my mother, your parents. It doesn't matter whether or not they were deprived as a youth. It doesn't matter or not whether or not they had no background that enabled them to have to uh, become a, a social uh, become socialized into the fabric of society. It doesn't matter whether or not they're the victims of society. The end result is they're about to knock my mother on the head with a lead pipe, shoot my sister, beat up my wife, take on my sons. So I don't want to ask what made them do this. They must be taken off the street. It's a shame, but we don't know how to rehabilitate. But there is a consensus, and I will cease. A, we must make the streets safer. I don't care why someone is a malefactor in society. I don't care why someone is antisocial. I don't care why they become a sociopath. We have an obligation to cordon them off from the rest of society, try to help them, try to change their behavior. That's what we do in this bill. We have drug treatment and we have other treatments to try to deal with it. But they are in jail, away from my mother, your husband, our families. But we would be, being, we would be absolutely stupid as a society if we didn't recognize the condition that nurtured those folks still exist, and we must deal with that. And I think there's a consensus among Republicans in that. Old barbed wire Republican conservatives must want to hang them high. Even those folks are saying, hey, we got to deal with the root cause of this. Not, not one or the other, but separately. And liberal Democrats who used to say, let's look at the sociological underpinnings of why this occurred, and we have to... They're now saying, hey, look, we've got to take back the streets. We'll make that fight later. So there is a consensus. I hope the remainder of the discussion, as we close out the debate in this bill, we can end that old fight. We can put it behind us. My question for you is, how much did the federal government do that, and how much comes to the state and city level? How much did they do what part? The... How, much, how many people does the federal government incarcerate versus the state and city level? This did provide broader leeway and create some sentencing guidelines for state and city um, departments. But in terms of, you know, Biden's kind of pompous, blustery, like, get him away from my mother kind <sighs> of deal, the federal government isn't doing very much of that. So this bill, although, you know, he's been rightly criticized uh, for championing it, um, it doesn't 
actually create that robust fuel for mass incarceration. It's a very small percentage of total incarcerated people that are uh, trapped in the in federal institutions. Yeah, that's that's really important. I mean, I, I like the way that I think about the 94 crime bill is that it encapsulates trends that were happening for many decades at state and local levels it, at the national level. But it actually, as you're saying, Ariella, is not causally really responsible for mass incarceration. I can't remember the numbers off the top of my head, but basically um, the first point is that so much of the increase has already happened by 1994. But the second point is, is exactly as you're saying, the federal government just isn't responsible for much of many of the people who are behind bars in the United States. You might say that federal legislation inspires copycats at state and local levels. I actually tend to think that the relationship runs in the reverse. But in general, it just isn't a big part of the story. The other the, the one thing I wanted to react to in the in the in the thing that he said is um, this idea that we don't know how to rehabilitate people is mm-hmm. is interesting on two counts. So on one count, it's interesting because I think there's a kernel of truth in the argument, which is to recognize that so much of the problem lies in the the fact that we've neglected people for so long in their lives, right? So people commit crime generally in like, um, uh, what, their late teens, early 20s. By that time, of course, there's a whole host of things that we ought to have done to support that person that we haven't done. And so the problem is grave. That's the first point. The other point I wanted to make, the other point I would make is that we actually have now very good data from the Scandinavian system, which suggests that actually, whereas in the American system, we have the very well-known problem of recidivism. So if you go to prison, you're actually more likely to return to prison than someone who didn't go to prison. In the Scandinavian system, it's actually the reverse. So people who go to prison are more likely to stay out of prison than people who didn't go to prison. And they do that Mm -hmm. through various kinds of random assignment of people to judges. They're able to kind of causally identify this effect. So the effect of prison in Scandinavia is actually to make you more employable and less likely to return to prison. So to say that we don't know how to rehabilitate person, rehabilitate people, I think is, you know, I don't know, 1994, this study hasn't been published, so who knows what he knew. But I think it's really actually quite simple. What the Scandinavian prisons are is they're just much, much, much more expensive than American prisons. They require much, much more resources to really work on People give them skills, give them training, uh, give them therapy, whatever they need. And so it's not really, we shouldn't also, we shouldn't make it a puzzle what it takes to rehabilitate people. It's just part of the broader story that we've been telling. America does not spend money on its poor. And as a consequence, then you get all of this faux moralizing about the poor. I think in Scandinavia, when you go to jail, you basically like get a studio apartment. <laughs> like, like their jails are just like I don't know. I mean, it's and probably more of a commentary. Famously. Yeah. <laughs> Anders Breivik in Norway famously has been complaining that he has a PlayStation Two and not a PlayStation Four or something. Like right. That. That yeah. Was part of his, Hardships yeah. of Nordic jail. Yeah. Uh, well, I it's mean, what I, we should aspire to. <laughs> right. <laughs> but like, I think the the important point here is that if you were to look at what the Nordics spend per prisoner on their on their prisoners. It's just, it's just, it's just different. It's totally different Mm -hmm. than Mm -hmm. what America spends on its prisoners. And you know that for leftists right now, it's maybe a difficult thing to wrap your head around because we're talking about defunding the police and prisons. 
But the truth is that I think we can massively scale back prisons while also making prisons much more humane and livable. And that requires more expenditure, not less. So I, I want to now ask you about uh, Democrats and crime waves, because as I mentioned at the beginning of the show, we're seeing another kind of mini uptick in violent crime, obviously nothing approaching what it was in the 60s and 70s. Um, but as I said earlier, something that I'm worried about is um, that uh, Democrats just don't know or don't have the right language to respond to this. I mean, we we definitely don't want Biden of 94 yeah. to come back. Um, but at the same time, uh, you know, when you look at the preferences of working class voters who are likely Democratic voters versus professional class voters, um, I think we have a chart here. Uh, but you can see that uh, the top issues for for working class voters, crime actually ranks pretty high. Mm. Uh, and then when you look at the top issues for professional class voters, um, crime doesn't even appear in the top six. Uh, if you look at the full chart, it's something like, you know, number 17. It's way down on the list. Um, and we know now that, uh, you know, the Democratic Party elite is overwhelmingly responsive to the interests and the concerns of professional class voters. I mean, that's just how things are right now. Um, and so, you know, Again, it's not I, I, I definitely do not want the Democrats to thunder on about law and order. I'm just worried that if they say nothing at all, that'll create an opportunity for law and order Republicans to kind of, you know, show up and be like, well, we're the ones who are talking about crime as they did sort of prior to, you know, the, the Clinton turn. Um, so so I guess my question for you is um, how can how can Democrats but actually maybe how can the left sort of address, or how can both parties sort of address the, address the rise in crime without taking a punitive turn? Yeah, super question. I think, so I, I think the important thing here, Jen, is to, is to not think that our predecessors did this poorly or failed because they didn't manage to craft a successful way of talking about Crime. I think the reason the left failed is because the left failed, not because they failed to talk about crime well, right? So I think we just have to learn the lessons from people like Baird Rustin, people like Martin Luther King, who used to talk about crime a lot as well, and just understand that what we need to do is tap into that common sense that is out there in the United States, which is that the problem of crime is ultimately a problem of poverty and the therefore a problem of the welfare state. And, you know, just noticing in the six issues that you put on that slide, we already have, I think, in those, in that ordering of six, it's kind of like crying out to us the way to talk about this. It's to mm-hmm. talk about one through five as a solution to six. There's a way to talk about this that I think is is, is, you know, something that is common, has is been common, not just in the history of the left in the United States, but all over the world. I mean, there's no, there, there's no, it's not the case that the right has a monopoly on the, the, the crime as an issue in the rest of the world. Leftists talk about crime and violence all the time. They talk about it as a form of state failure. They talk about it as a consequence of poverty. And I think there's no reason that we can't do the same. I I do think that subtly what we worry about is that if they failed in the past, 
do we need a new strategy? But I think the reasons that they failed in the past have nothing to do with the strategy. They failed because the left was defeated, but not because of its choice about how to talk about crime. So I just think it's about doubling down on our analysis, which is correct. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and then um, using that to, to push our politics, which are also correct. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, that's that's both uh, a heartening and a little bleak because in some ways the left is weaker than it's ever been, true. right? So, yeah, that's but I, true. yeah, your point is well taken. That's true. No, that's definitely true, and I think, yeah, I, I think you know there are no shortcuts. Unfortunately, mm-hmm. I think mm-hmm. the reality is that the weakness of the left means that yeah, we are, we are. We the, the weakness of the left means that a lot of the problems of criminal justice, I think, will be with us for a long time. I just think mm-hmm. one of the important tasks of the left right now is to it, a, a friend of mine, Jeremy Cohen, who's a friend of the show, once put this really well. He said that, you know, socialists have an obligation to talk about criminal justice reform because it's a site of massive injustice and oppression. But really, one of the the other reasons that socialists should think about criminal justice reform is because criminal justice reform really needs socialists. Because unless we understand that the problems of the criminal justice system are ultimately a symptom of the problems outside the criminal justice system, none of the things that criminal justice reformers want to achieve will really be possible. And so that's why I think the, the, the left is a really important, uh, can be a really important force in this notwithstanding, of course, the fact that they're, that we're weak and minuscule. <laughs> right, right. Well, I guess, I guess just to quickly follow up on that then, um, I think, you know, I, I think we agree, we would agree with everything that you've been saying about, uh, needing to address, uh, poverty and this kind of, uh, you know, uh, a tiny welfare state as the main thing that we need to do issues one through five on the list of working class, uh, you know, voters priorities, so to speak. Um, But in addition to that, are there specific criminal justice or policing reforms that you think would go a long way? Um, Because, you know, we've been hearing, I I mean, I think we had mentioned the George Floyd um, Justice and Policing Act earlier. Uh, You know, that is, you know, that that's gotten a mixed reaction from from progressives and from leftists. uh, But it would ban choke holds, it would ban things like no-knock warrants. I mean, do you, th- do you see those things as useful complements to the kind of larger project of expanding the welfare state? Yeah, I'm not sure what, uh, I'm not sure what order these should be conducted in or how, like, how we should think about which comes first or which comes uh, last. I, I, like, I think in many ways that's just a function of the opportunities probably that are available to us. My so I, I I have to I I I I have to say that I think there are definitely things I think that can be done in the realm of policing and a, a lot of the things that you alluded to I think um, are important. The other thing that I would say the very obvious place to push is in prison policy, not just in policing. So I think American sentences are way way too long, and there's no sign that. You know, going being in an American prison is is worse for you than not being in an American prison, as I was saying earlier. And so I think another place for for people to push is to push for shorter sentences for um, all sorts of crimes to push. I think in general, maybe both with regards to policing and prison to push from to push for uh, for less focus on kind of petty offenses, non-serious crimes, that kind of stuff. I think that uh, occupies a lot of policing and incarceration. These are obviously all 
policy solutions or policy suggestions that are bound by realism. Like, you know, there might be many more dramatic things that one might propose, but I think that they're currently off the table. But yeah, I do think that in general, there are some criminal justice poly policy so solutions that could be important. I, I, but in general, I'm usually in kind of academic crowds, the person who tries to remind criminal justice policy wonks that the problem really lies outside of everything that they're looking at. Um, and so I don't, I kind of pride myself on not being very wonkish in this regard. <laughs> yeah, same here. <laughs> <laughs> Although, you know, the, the, the segment that you did, Ariel, I think that would have made many wonks proud. That was a really... Really? I was really impressed. Yeah. <laughs> Cross-national comparisons. Have I, yeah. <laughs> have I ever made them proud? I'm not sure I ever have before. That's nice to hear. <laughs> Didn't drop Matt Brennan's name? No, Jen did. Oh, Jen did. Oh, okay. Yeah. Sorry. Uh, just, just I, I think the uh, statistic that I had cited from him is that even two-parent households in the U.S. Uh, have much higher rates of poverty than two-parent households in, say, Finland. Um, right. So, you know, uh, like, in addition to being extremely punitive on single mothers or, or single parents, the U.S. is also not helping uh, uh, two-income households. Yeah. So, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Everybody yeah. loses. Absolutely. Yeah. There's a really nice, uh, there's a really nice New York Times editorial by David Brady, who's a sociologist who studies poverty in America. And he puts this really well with some co-authors, which is that all, all, um, all, in all countries, there are various kinds of risk factors associated with being poor. So single motherhood is one of them. Being unemployed is another. This goes to a point that Ariel also made. Um, but in the United States, these risk factors are penalized so much more harshly mm -hmm. than in mm -hmm. other countries that when a conservative looks at what's happening or just a liberal looks at what's happening, they think that the causal action lies in these risk factors when in fact it lies in mm -hmm. the environment that penalizes those risk factors, which is a point I think yep. is yep. totally the same as the point that Ariel is making. Um, and it's, yeah. it's a really, really important point. I, I was, I was uh, in the chat, uh, Ariel, going to say that we could kind of probably replace all sociology classes with that 10 minute segment and we'd have an army of better educated <laughs> sociologists. It was yeah, really you know. <laughs> oh, thank you. Yeah, it's I have an axe to grind because I had to go to that stupid get married while I'm <laughs> pregnant uh, social worker thing. Yeah. Um, yeah, state sponsored. It was miserable. <laughs> but I do have a kind of pedantic economics question, which is that, you know, Biden has made these more progressive overtures. He's talked about giving child tax credits. He's talked about um, making economic interventions, um, particularly in poor neighborhoods, um, reducing the stakes, if you will, of poverty, reducing mm -hmm. the risks of other things, expanding the um, social safety net for health care is another another way that does that. So leftists have said, oh, this is Biden's Keynesian shift is a way of redeeming capitalism because neoliberalism has failed. All right. You're at Harvard. <laughs> I think people, <laughs> maybe this is so, this is kind of pompous of me, but I'd like to define our terms here. Keynesianism has a specific relationship to institutional interventions. And that's what people are getting at, right? That Keynesianism is a philosophy that encourages particular economic interventions, whereas neoliberalism encourages others. That's kind of the backdrop of this whole conversation around 
the uh, welfare state in the U.S. And as you said earlier, we can see mass incarceration as a, a kind of um, outcrop of American neoliberalism. Can you tell us what is the difference? <laughs> this is, it's like I'm interviewing you. <laughs> because, yeah, but I do think like it's important. Because people are saying, well, this Keynesian shift, so so called, is just to redeem, you know, late capitalism, essentially, mm-hmm. or neoliberal capitalism. What What is the difference between these two kinds of social welfare approaches? And are they, Ariel, just to make sure I understand the question, are people who are saying that, saying that to denigrate these expansions? Mm, I like- think so. I mean, I think they're trying to do two things. One, say, listen... This is um, not necessarily a political choice so mm-hmm. much as like, a, um, I don't know, pulling the ripcord on a parachute, mm-hmm. right? They think that there's going to be some kind of catastrophic um, collapse and this is a way of mitigating that yeah. or that there will be some kind of catastrophic social response and this is a way of mitigating that. Right. Um, but we did have quite... For a long time in the U.S., we did have a Keynesian consensus. And it in economics, that's particularly, um, it has particular meaning with regards to unemployment and wages. And so when we're talking about jobs programs preventing crime or um, state interventions that change the stakes of unemployment, those are kind of like Keynesian interventions versus neoliberal interventions, which... And and the people having this conversation are usually saying, okay, neoliberalism failed and Biden isn't progressive. He's just trying to like bail a bit of water out of the canoe with this Keynesian reversion. Yeah. This is a this is a very big question. Yeah, it's a very big question, like on, on... I'm sorry. No, it's a great question. It's a great question. I think um wait, what did that say down below? Real walk Real walk hours. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. Uh, I think, so here's here's my gloss on this, and I think I'm probably not the right person to answer this, Ariella. My gloss on this is that the kind of thing that people might be arguing is that the sort of expansion in social spending that we've seen in the context of COVID and the pandemic might simply be uh, an attempt by the previous administration and then this administration to, as you were saying, I can't remember the metaphor exactly, but like water out of the the canoe. Yeah. 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 And so what we might expect as a consequence is that this is not sustained social spending. A lot of this is like emergency kind of spending. And so we might not expect to see a sustained expansion of the welfare state as a consequence of the kind of expansion in social spending that we've seen in the last Mm -hmm. couple of years. And to be honest, I don't, know whether they're right or they're wrong. I think in some ways it's probably just too early to know. I would say that in my own general, my own general priors about when you get redistribution in advanced capitalist economies is that they are usually the result of a strong movement of either poor and working class people who are putting pressure on the state. And so it's a little... Uh, it's a little, I'm not entirely sure that the COVID context qualifies as that, right? COVID is something Mm -hmm. 
different. It's there's no doubt that they felt certain worries about an acute social crisis and maybe an economic crisis, the kind of thing that you were alluding to. But I'm just I'm not so confident. Maybe I should just say more forcefully, I'm not so confident that this will result in sustained social spending precisely because we are in a moment when I think the left is quite weak. And so I I generally have reservations, but I think I, you know, I, I could be wrong. I'm not sure. In so many ways, this is an unprecedented moment. And maybe this is more like the First World War or something like that, which did result in a bump of social spending in many European countries. So I'm not sure. I'm not, I don't know if that addresses your deep pedant but that was that's my boss extremely pedantic question (laughs) um but either way we have to keep uh you know broadening our movement talking about the basic issues of people's lives and i do think having the conversation around when and how redistribution happens is extremely important especially if we see gestures to it if we see overtures to this and are, are told like that's progressivism and that's as good as it'll get yeah we have to keep unpacking that and i think that the failures that you've identified um in the 60s of kind of pursuing the redistributive angle as a way of tackling crime just redouble the importance of like taking that lesson to heart and figuring out how to make it sustainable. Because there were actually quite a few government and state programs on a small scale trying to address these things, and they failed to make a meaningful impact. Yeah, and I think what we have to argue is that it was precisely because they were at small scale, local scale, that they failed, not because they didn't fail because the idea itself is flawed. And I think for that, we want to just hit very hard these cross-national comparisons. I'm always shocked at how America-centric discourse about American poverty Mm -hmm. is, right? And that's what allows this moralizing to take on a life of its own. If you are just a little disciplined by how how awful this country is vis-a-vis other countries, as, you know, your segment so expertly did, I think we, the answers are really obvious. They're staring us in the face. We only look at one side of American exceptionalism here, <laughs> which is like we can build some kick-ass fighter jets. And yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right. I'm like revealing my deeply unpatriotic. I can't even list another thing. That's <laughs> like big, big sodas or something. I don't yeah, know. <laughs> and, uh, trucks. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, so before we let a daughter go, I just want to quickly mention again um, his Catalyst essay with John Clegg is the economic origins of mass incarceration. Um, and if you want to do anti-wonk hours, you can also check out an interview that he did in Jacobin, Everything You Know About Mass Incarceration is Wrong, uh, which is a really good and kind of straightforward, I think, primer to some of the issues that we just discussed today and which Adoner addresses in the Catalyst article as well. Um, so on that note, uh, Adoner, thank you so much for coming oh, on thank the Jacobin you. Show. Thank, thanks for having me. This was so much fun. I Come also back learned and a lot. talk about your book. Sorry? Exactly. You and John should come on. We'll have you both on. You can talk about your book. That's a, there's a little too much pressure, Ariella. <laughs> <laughs> forthcoming. Yeah, yeah. Very yeah. forthcoming. You have time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's also us being optimistic that the show will exist in 2020. <laughs> right. So come on. Help yeah, so, so everyone hit like and subscribe. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, thank you again, Adonor. It was great talking to you. I would encourage everybody to read both um, pieces because 
there is a kind of um, a danger in siloing the argument so that it's just the racial element, which mm-hmm. is real and exists and is completely acknowledged in the article. But in yeah. siloing that, um, it can limit the kind of broad scale interventions and changes that we need to push for. And so I think it's a very important piece you and John have created. Thank you. Thanks very much for having me. Thanks, Adonar. That was a great talk. Um, I don't know what else I can add on to that except to plug both the article, uh, the Catalyst article and the Jacobin interview again. Um, but it really is one of the best things that I, the most, one of the most clarifying things I've read on mass incarceration uh, and is just a really solid uh, political economic uh, explanation, I think, of how mass incarceration came into being, which, you know, uh, as you said, Ariella, doesn't excuse racism in any way, shape, or form, but also doesn't situate it as the driving force, um, which mm-hmm. I think is very provocative, uh, but a really useful way of understanding, you know, how we got here. And also, I think it's I think it's important to really understand how we got here if we want to solve the problem, right? Absolutely. We don't yeah. want a system where we just see an even number of black people incarcerated and we still have the most brutal incarceration um, in the world. We don't want to have a horrific penal system with jails that leave people, you know, chronically ill even after they get out for the rest of their lives, brutal police forces, and have just like a a fair distribution of Americans in that system. We need to, you know, attack it at every level. And I think this helps expand that perspective. Right. All right. Well, um, again, please hit like and subscribe so we can exist into 2022 and have (laughs) Adonner and John Clegg on the show when their book comes out. (laughs) Please hit like and subscribe if you uh, enjoyed seeing uh, Issa make her debut appearance. Oh, yeah. Give her a little. She's hitting dislike and unsubscribe. She's (laughs) over this. (laughs) She's over the discourse on single motherhood in the U.S. and her disappointment with uh, the 94 crime bill has registered loud and clear good she's got a lot more to say about biden we'll have her on too (laughs) right (laughs) stay tuned for that also in 2022 (laughs) (laughs) all right well thanks jen and everyone for watching i think this has been a great episode please also share it with whoever you know who wants to talk about crime thank you guys and good night